0: all right let's pray gracious father we thank you for the freshness of this new day and the display of faithfulness that you have had in each of our lives this past week we look forward today our father for strength and spiritual wisdom as we seek to honor you with our conduct may our minds be open to the truth of your word and may our Heavenly Father we be people ready to receive your truth in a wonderful way. May this entire day be a day that is beneficial to our spiritual life. And we ask our Father that the unspoken requests that are mentioned in this room, uh, the things deep within each heart and mind, know your responses in ways that will honor you, glorify you, we ask our Father that you would be pleased with all aspects of our conduct today, in Jesus' name we pray, amen. All right, we have been looking at, how did that get up there? Did someone put that up there? Screensaver. Screensaver. Mm-hmm. Modern technology. <laughs> it doesn't work for me, I'll tell you what. All right, let's see if we can get, ah, there it is. <coughs> ah we got it all right we're studying the book of James let me if I may just review hey hi Sam I didn't know you were still alive <laughs> how are you feeling barely good uh, we are looking at the book of James and I am suggesting to you that it is a letter to Hebrew Christians in the first century and uh, the important thing that to remember about the Book of James is despite the fact that it is number 20 in our Bible, in actuality, it is the first book of the New Testament to be written. In fact, I have suggested to you that it is written prior to Galatians, prior to most of the New Testament, and it comes way back here at the very beginning, perhaps just a matter of two or three years after the church began on the day of Pentecost the thing I find extremely interesting about the book of James is that if we believe God the Holy Spirit is the author of the Bible which we do The first thing he tells the believers of the New Testament era, the very first thing before he tells them your sins are forgiven, which is true. Before he tells them that they are now permanently indwelt with the Holy Spirit, which is true. Before he tells them that they have the assurance of heaven, which is true. And all of the other wonderful promises that we have as born-again believers What does he tell them? The very first thing is, my brethren, consider it all joy when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. The first thing God tells us in this era, troubles are coming. Troubles are coming. Just get ready. But they have a positive outlook. They have a positive effect in our Christian experience, and that positive effect is that they can result in us being a fully mature and fully complete born-again believer. I don't like trouble. I don't like trial. Just ask my wife. I am as good a complainer as there can possibly be when Difficult times come. I think we all have a little bit of that in our DNA. But I never learn when things are going well. I learn and you learn and we all learn when things are going in a tough way. And that's exactly what James is trying to tell the born-again believer. So the entire book of James is about trials. And he tells us right at the very first part of the book, how are we supposed to respond to trials? Number one, we are to welcome them. Next, he tells us, don't blame God for the situation you're in, because oftentimes it is self-induced. So he tells us in chapter 1, verse 19 and 20, that there are three, three ways to respond to trials. He tells us that we are to be Swift to hear, slow to speak, slow to wrath. And I am suggesting to you that this is the outline of the book of James. And there are going to be three major sections of this section. We have already looked at the fact that swift to hear being, means more than mere listening. And what we are doing now as we have moved to the second one, swift to hear is more than just morality. Just living nice life, comfortable life, going to church, reading our Bible in private, doing things that honor God, avoiding things that dishonor God. What does he tell us? It's more than morality, mere morality. What does he tell us? He talks to us about partiality. This is one of those areas in all of our lives that I think is easily overlooked. And so let me, if I may, read through the section that we want to look at in detail today and a little bit of this is review and we'll pick up a little bit on it. James chapter 2 verse 1 down to verse 13. My brethren, do not hold your faith in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ with an attitude of personal favoritism. For if man comes to you, if, for if a man comes to you to your assembly with a gold ring and dressed in fine clothes, and there comes to you a poor man in dirty clothes, and you pay attention to the one wearing the fine clothes and say you sit here in the good place, and you say to the poor man, you stand over there or sit down by my footstool. Have you not made distinction among yourselves and become judges with evil motives? Listen, my beloved brethren, did not God choose the poor of this world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor it is not the rich uh, excuse me is it not the rich who oppress you and personally drag you into court do they not blaspheme the fair name by which you have been called if however you are fulfilling the royal law according to the scripture you shall love your neighbor as yourself you are doing well but if you show partiality you are committing sin and are convinced or convicted by the law as a transgressor. For over whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles in one point, he's guilty of all. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not commit murder. Now, if you do not commit adultery, but you commit murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. So speak and so act as those who are to be judged by the law of liberty. For judgment will be merciless to ones who have shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment." The big problem all of us have, whether we like to admit it or not, is partiality. All you have to do is go walk the streets of any major city, And the people who are unbecoming are the people we take a wide walk around. Does that just happen on city streets? Nope, it happens even in a church setting. And of course, that is the thing that James is talking about. The sin of partiality, the sin of foolish favoritism. He goes on and says, All of these different things, you can call it whatever you want, but the thing that he is really talking about is economic disparity within the church family. In any given local assembly, whether that assembly is on the west side of the valley, east side of the valley, or the middle of the valley, there is a level of economic disparity. There are some who've got lots of money and they show it by the cars they drive, the clothes they wear. And I'm not I'm not depreciating any any of that. But the point is it doesn't matter what we are like on the outside. God says, I want you to take a close look and be objective about certain things. And so he says, when we come to the assembly, do we cater to the rich and depreciate the poor? Particularly in the assembly over the years as pastor of this church for many, many years. And then as an observer, I will have to confess to you that there were certain people that I enjoyed being around and there were other people that I preferred just not to get too close to. Now, I'm confessing that to you Would anybody else like to confess that as well? (laughs) Yes, you all would. And you all should. Because it happens. But the point that James is trying to point out to us is that it shouldn't be that way. Why? Because the poor people are people that often are rejected, shunned, humiliated. Rich people, on the other hand, get the preferred seating, at least in the New Testament church, acceptance and their showcase. Oh, look at that, look at that, wonderful family. Oh, we think they'll be a bonus to the church. Whereas the poor people, there'll be <clears throat> a problem in the church. We might have to go the extra mile to help them out. And you know one of the things I will have to say about this particular assembly, and one of the things they have done, I think, a very, very good job at, is we have what, Let's. I forget what it's called, a benevolence fund, benevolence fund. And I think that from what I have heard, uh, they're doing a very, very commendable job of properly distributing that when people are in need. However, just because you put money in a plate and designate it in the benevolence fund does not necessarily mean you have fulfilled the responsibility. And the reason I say that, and I got to be careful here, is would you notice what he says in preface to this section? He says in verse 26 of chapter 1, If anyone thinks himself to be religious and yet does not bridle his own tongue but deceives his own heart, this man's religion is worthless. This is pure and undefiled Religion in the sight of God and uh, our God and Father to visit the poor, the widows, the orphans in their distress. That's a little bit more than just putting money in a plate, that is personally reaching out and showing personally. That you care. Now, I realize that in modern society, we all have a level of busyness, our schedules are packed, and uh, it's just easier to do it from a distance. But he goes on and he says, there's got to be some personal involvement in all of this. Why is it? that we should be personally involved, particularly with these people? Well, he tells us, and here's where I would like to do a little bit of discussing. The poor, he tells us in chapter 2, are rich in faith. while they may have tattered clothes on the outside while they may have an unsightly appearance they may be spiritual millionaires they may be people who have a walk with God that we don't even know about uh I remember years and years ago uh, hearing E.V. Hill. How many of you have ever heard of E.V. Hill? All right. E.V. Hill was a black pastor in downtown Los Angeles. And I heard him several times at the Moody Pastors Conference way, way back. E.V. Hill, uh, that guy could preach. Uh, If you've ever heard a black preacher and I'm commending them, okay? Somehow a black preacher, when they start preaching, it's like an airplane taking off. They start real slow and then they get airborne and then look out. They don't preach to a uh, congregation. They have a conversation with the conversation or the congregation. You understand what I'm saying? They preach and there's amens and shouts and back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. I remember an illustration that he had, and he lived in a rather well to do area of LA. But he said, You know, when I was growing up, we lived in abject poverty. And he said, I didn't know that we were poor economically because I I never knew, I never knew what rich people were like. All the people around us, all the people in our neighborhood, every people that we had in contact with, they were poor. And I didn't know what Rich was. But he said, I remember my parents had a walk with God that just made the biggest impression on me. And I'll never forget that illustration. Because we often have a tendency to think that only people who are well off and they look at everything that God has given them, we often take it for granted. But the people that have to live day by day by day by day and depend completely on God the whole time are sometimes people that have a prayer life and a walk with God that is just phenomenal. You remember what uh, Jesus said on the Sermon on the Mount? Blessed are the poor in spirit. Now, I know that may have a slightly different nuance than what he's talking about here, but the poor in spirit are people sometimes that are rich in faith. Uh, They're well-to-do in faith. Uh, Sometimes those who are well-to-do are impoverished when it comes to faith. Any comments that you want to mention? Any thing you want to throw in? It just just points out how when somebody doesn't have physical and economic means. They have to have a strong body. Uh, That's a good point. Because the dependence is outside of themselves, and they know it. They cannot be assured of uh, their own resources. Anybody else? Yes. It looks like this is the second time that the book has said something is promised to those who love him. And the other one is in uh, chapter one, verse twelve. Uh, those who are tempted and and endure it get approval by God and receive the crown of life. So it's talking about oh, yeah. in eternity. And in this verse, the poor who are rich in faith uh, will inherit the kingdom and be rewarded. In it. I uh, I do have heirs of the kingdom up there yeah. now. Uh, <clears throat> here's where a little debate may come in. I'm going to tip my hand as to how I feel. I believe the New Testament teaches that there are basically two phases, not two steps, but two phases. I believe the New Testament teaches us about entrance into the kingdom and inheritance into the kingdom. And I do not believe the New Testament teaches that everyone who enters the kingdom is automatically going to inherit responsibility in the kingdom. Does everybody understand the distinction? I think there is a distinction. Let me take you to a couple places outside the book of James where this seems to be The emphasis, and I'm looking first of all at Romans chapter 8. You know me in the book of Romans. Romans chapter 8, I am looking at verse 17. Now the interesting thing about verse 17 is I see two phases here or two levels. He says, starting with verse 16, The Spirit himself bears witness, along with our spirit, that we are the children of God. And if children, heirs. Also, heirs of God, and I believe that there should be a comma right there, and fellow heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him in order that we may be glorified with him. Two different levels. There are some that are heirs. There are some that are joint heirs. And how does that come? What's the distinction? He says, for those who suffer, for those who have difficulty and endure it, they're going to be joint heirs with Christ. Christ. Now, I believe that that is probably some additional responsibility when we get to heaven. I do not believe, while all of us have eternal life, all of us have eternal life, I do not believe that there is absolute equality in heaven where everybody's going to be on the same length. It seems to me like there are just enough parables in the Gospels of Matthew as well as Luke that indicate that faithfulness in this life will have a determination as to our level of responsibility that we have in heaven. Does everybody understand that particular distinction? So what you're saying is some of us are going to be peons and others are going to be colonels. Uh, I didn't say peons. <laughs> uh-huh. I believe that, I believe uh-huh. even for those who enter into heaven, There will be riches and displays of grace like we cannot ever imagine. But I do believe that faithfulness in this life is going to be rewarded by additional responsibility. I get that from uh, Matthew chapter 25, the parable of uh, of the talents, where one man is given five talents and on earth he doubles it. Another person is given two talents, and he doubles it. Another person has one talent, and he doesn't do anything with it. And God says, there's some consequences in the future as a result of that. So, but see, another thing I think that's important, and I will have to tell you that uh, when I was in Texas, uh, I, have, I have a brother who uh, who he and I have had some <clears throat> intense conversations about this <laughs> and uh, he doesn't think there there is any truth to that first of all when you get to heaven you will not have a sin nature and I believe that there's going to be a complete and total satisfaction with what God gives us that The the sin of comparison will be completely gone from our attitude. But I do believe that there are going to be levels of responsibility and levels of reward in heaven. For example, let me show you one other passage. And I recognize that this is a debate that uh, probably could rage quite a bit. But what is it, what is one of the last things our Lord says in Revelation chapter 20? What's one of the last things he says? Let me tell you. And you can read Revelation chapter 22. He says, behold, I come quickly. And what's the next line? And my reward is with me. So he is going to be dispensing rewards when he comes. And how do the rewards dispense? They're dispensed as a result of our faithfulness to God. Uh, Let me show you one other passage of Scripture, and this is really up for debate because, uh, well, it is seen differently. Over in Galatians chapter 5. Galatians chapter 5, end of the chapter, he's writing to born-again believers, and he said, all right, born-again believers, you have two options as far as your conduct is concerned. Option number one, you can display the fruits of the Spirit. Option number two, you can display the works of the flesh. Now the interesting thing is that when he starts out by mentioning the works of the flesh, starting with verse 19, he mentions 15 plus works of the flesh. 15 different types of conduct that born-again believers can engage in. Uh, Let me just ask a question and this may be a matter uh, of debate is it possible for born-again believers to display works of the flesh it certainly is certainly is uh, for example when you look at uh, verse 17 uh, well let's start with verse 19 Immorality? Are all born-again believers pure from immorality? No. He goes on sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, outburst of anger, disputes, dissension, factions, envying. Born-again believers are capable of all those things. But notice what he says at the end of verse 21. He says, I have forewarned you that those who practice such things shall not inherit the kingdom of God. Now, what is he saying? Does he say we're not going to go to heaven? He doesn't say that. He says, we'll enter it, but we won't inherit it we won't inherit those special responsibilities that God gives us. I know this may be brand spanking new to you, but you remember what Jesus said in John chapter three to Nicodemus, except a man be born again, he cannot what? Enter. The kingdom of God. You cannot even see it. So, to see the kingdom of God, that's the entrance. To inherit the kingdom of God is something else. Any comments or questions? So, because. When the rich man said, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus told him works. That's exactly right. He says, there are certain things you've got to do in your Christian experience to inherit it. See, if he had said enter, if he had said enter the kingdom, Christ would have had a totally different answer. But Christ, he asked, what do I do to inherit it? Christ gave him the answer. He didn't like the answer. But see, the point is, there is, well, any other comments? Yes, Harry. I, oh? Oh, I just remember John one twelve where it says, become children, but I guess that doesn't really say enter or inherit, Right. To think about that. Uh, the word there is, uh, how does it go, let's see. What's the first line? Huh? But as many <laughs> as receive him, the word receive basically means welcome him in. To them gave he eternal life, even to those that believe on his name. So I'm inclined to think that there is a difference between just being a Christian and being a disciple. Being, becoming a Christian is just a matter of trust, and faith in Christ, having full and complete confidence in the provision of Jesus Christ, becoming a disciple and follower of the Lord Jesus Christ where we receive the abundance of inheritance. That's a whole lifestyle. That is a radical change and a radical adjustment where Christ is number one in every aspect of your life. I would have to say that there are people. I know people. You know people. As a pastor, I saw people that just give 100% to God. I saw other people that would trust Christ and now I can live any way I want. That's not what the Bible teaches. Once you make Christ as your Savior, God expects us to have a radical change from that point on, not to prove we are saved, but out of gratitude that God has saved us, and that's important, that's the key distinction. We do it not to prove we're saved or not to get saved, but because Look what God has done for me. And we are thankful, we are appreciative that what God has done for us. Any other comments? Yes? Go ahead. Do you see the distinction between like the Millennial Kingdom and the Eternal Order? I tend to think of eternal order as everybody's the same, and the Millennial Kingdom having all these I believe he's I believe he is talking about the Millennial Kingdom. Okay. And if you will look closely at James chapter 2, he does say, and it is the virtually the only reference in the whole book of James, end of verse 5, rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom. And I believe he's talking there about the messianic kingdom of 1,000 years. All right, let me uh, go ahead, Harry. I'm just going back to your, kind of your slide there about the poor and the rich. You know, several places in the Bible it talks about God doesn't desire our sacrifices, but he wants a contrite heart. And, you know, I think we need to be giving of time and our resources, but, you know, it only going be of any value if we do it the right thing from our heart. So, and I think poor people, they don't have that to give, so everything they do give is something of real value to them. Right. And we have got, there is a 20th and 21st century mentality which says, time is money. And we have a mentality that I'm worth something, that my time is worth more than your time. And if you, there are people, unfortunately, Christian people, who say, I'm going to not, that would be a double negative, I'm not going to do anything unless I'm paid for it, because my time is valuable. And I'll tell you what, it takes time. It takes time out of our schedule, and usually it takes time from the things we would prefer doing. And when we do things for people who we know will never be able to repay us in any way, shape, or form, that's what he's talking about right here. That's what he's talking about. Now, let me, uh, let me just go on to the, the next thing. It's coming. <clears throat> there we go. He goes on and he says, all right, there's a contrast between the rich and the poor. And, uh, and we won't go into the rich, but here's what happens if the rich, what, they're gonna, what are they going to do? They're going to oppress you. Uh, rich people do not take people to court unless they know they're going to win, right? You think, you think rich people, hey, I, I want to lose this million dollars, so I'm going to take these people to court, because I know I'm going to lose. They usually don't do that, do they? That's what he's talking about. Rich people take you to court to get what little money you have. But let's go on. Here's a great quote from C.S. Lewis. He says, Every child of God is in the process of becoming a noble being, noble beyond imagination, the dullest, most uninteresting person you can talk to may one day be a creature which, if you saw them now, you would be strongly tempted to worship. There are no ordinary people. It is immortals whom we joke with, work with, marry, stump, exploit. It's a great line from C.S. Lewis. The interesting thing about the closing section of this, uh, or the closing thoughts of this particular section, is he lists a group of sins. Uh, the Roman Catholics have been famous for categorizing sins. Does anybody know what the two categories are? Renial and mortal. Mm-hmm. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> and which ones are more intense? Mortal. Mortal. Adultery, murder, all these things that are just terrible. But then the venial, why, they are sins that are not quite as bad. Jealousy, envy. I don't know how they categorize them, but I would have to say that uh, the way I understand it, the mortal sins are sins that you commit to other people. The venial sins are the ones inside of you that never take real expression. They don't hurt anybody. It's just things you're in, that's inside. I don't know if that's the distinction or not. But I think one of the things that James is doing toward the end of this section is he is trying to eliminate the ad- attitude that people might have that say, well, you know, there are some sins that are just not that bad and we might think the very first one surely it's not as bad as murder surely it's not as bad as adultery but what James is trying to point out is hey they're all equally bad and if you offend in one area you've offended in every area and he goes on and he sells us failure to love A poor brother nullifies any pride we might have in obeying God's law in other respects. Sin is sin. it be a white sin, gray sin, black sin. Sin is sin. Once it has crossed the line, God says, crossed the line. Now, how do we take care of sin? How do we take care of sin in my life? And every one of us have to utilize this. What do we do? Simply confession. Simply confession. If we confess our sin, the word confess means to agree with God that it really is sin. Or we can say, well, you know, it really wasn't as bad as, uh, uh, God, your your standards are just a little bit too rigid. Uh, I'm not going to go quite to the extreme of saying, it was really that bad. No, we've gotta agree with God that it really isn't. If we confess our sin, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sin. Cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Comments or questions? Y'all look spellbound. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, I would have to say, that this is an assignment as far as our conduct is concerned, that we will fight our entire Christian experience. We just need to go the extra mile, have the right attitude. And every time we see a person who is struggling economically, realize they may be poor but they're probably rich in faith and when we get to heaven they will probably be in positions of wonderful authority because of the faithfulness that they manifested here on earth comments or questions yes ma'am this is probably too loaded, but how do you raise, a, how do you help somebody go from a new believer to a mature Chris, Christian disciple? I believe that uh, the uh, just exposure to reading the scripture, because he, he talked about the, a little bit of that in the previous section, where he says we look into the perfect law of liberty. And the word for look there means that we we stare at it. We let it become part of our thinking. Romans chapter 12, verse one. He says, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, present your body. And then he says, I want you to change your thinking. And that's, that's where the battle is. The battle in all Christian experience is right up here. Changing the way we are changing our attitude, changing your attitude, results in change of action and behavior. Now, God has given us all kinds of tools in the toolbox to do that. The ministry of the Holy Spirit in our life, no question about it, but the Holy Spirit does not work in a vacuum. The Holy Spirit takes the truth of God from the scriptures and applies it into our life. If you just say, well, I'm gonna let the Holy Spirit change me and never touch the Bible, never look at the Bible, how do you know what God wants you to do apart from looking at the Word? So the Holy Spirit is our teacher teaching us how to conduct ourselves. And exposure to the scripture, in my personal opinion, And I think you you can go through the scriptures and see over and over and over again how we are to look at scripture, let it change our thinking, and then we become the kind of people God wants us to be. Is it something that takes place overnight? No, it is a lifetime (coughs) journey to be transformed to the image of Jesus Christ that he wants us to become. Anybody else? Did I, is there some I left out? All right. Hey, thank you, folks. Thank you. Uh, next week, we're going to get into James chapter 2, 14, following faith without works is dead. Bring your swords, your shields, everything else. I will have to tell you, this is the most controversial passage in all of Scripture. Right, David? Pretty much. And you can count on me. I probably do have an opinion about it. (laughs) Thank you.